0: So what if I told you this morning that we were going to do something very different and instead of preaching, I was going to invite each of you, one by one, to come up to the pulpit and to share with all of us your most embarrassing moment. Now some of you, that would make you very uncomfortable. Some of you might find ways to sneak out the back door. You, watching from home, are probably very grateful that you are at home. Now there might be a few of you that are like, yes, this is my opportunity, Now, I'm sure that if we made this a big event we all had a lot of fun with it, you know, we could have like the tabernacle comedy hour, right? And this would be something that we could all sort of get around a little bit, even though it would be uncomfortable. Uh, We'd all be uncomfortable together. We'd learn more things about each other. But what if I told you, rather than that, I was going to invite each of you up here to share with us the one thing that you are most ashamed of? Well, that's a different story. That makes us really uncomfortable. Because we all have things that we are deeply ashamed of. We all have things that we are very careful with who we share them with, if we share with them with anybody. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus knows everything about you. He knows the things that you are most ashamed of. He knows your biggest struggles. He knows your biggest failures. He knows everything. And yet he still loves you. He has removed all of your guilt and shame. And the more that we understand this, the more our love for him is going to grow. Because the more we understand what Jesus has done for us, we can realize that we can be completely free before him. We don't have to hide anything from him. You can be your true self with Jesus. And there's great freedom in that. There's great joy and peace and comfort in that. Because you know that as you reveal your true self to him, he will not turn you away. He will not reject you. You see, the gospel changes the way that we not only view Jesus and know him, it changes the way we view ourselves, and it really should change the way that we view one another and the way that we interact with one another. And Paul's going to be talking about that this morning. And so I invite you to stand with me as we read from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And this is the word of God given to us. Oh Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that though there is nothing hidden from your sight, you still love us. You've redeemed us and you are transforming us even now. And as we come before your word this morning, I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged. And Lord, I pray that through your spirit, we would not hear my voice, but we'd hear your voice through me. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So the structure of this passage is pretty straightforward. The, the church is given an exhortation in verse 2. Paul commands the church at Philippi to complete his joy by pursuing unity. And he provides the foundation of that unity in verse 1. And then he encourages the church to pursue unity by pursuing humility. Um, because humility, uh, the more we grow in, in humility, that will promote and grow unity within the church. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. So why is Paul concerned about unity? Why does that matter to him? Well, although the church in Philippi is a healthy church, we've seen this over the last few weeks, it's a healthy church that loves Jesus and loves Paul, they still have some problems that need to be addressed. They're not a perfect church. There is no perfect church. And in the case of the Philippians, they are struggling at times to love and to serve one another as they are called to do. And so Paul does not want to see that continue to happen because if they continue to struggle in this way, it could lead to discord, it could lead to division. And so Paul doesn't want that. Um, And this is true for the church today. One of the chief characteristics of the church should be unity. This is one of our highest callings as the people of God is that we should be one. We should be unified. Unity in the church is important for at least two reasons. First, it's important because we live in a time of warfare. Until Jesus returns, the church is in a spiritual battle. We we talked about this last week. This is what Paul addresses at the end of chapter 1. He says that we are called to stand firm together, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel with one mind and one spirit. So as Christians, each of us is a soldier of the one true king, and we are called to fight the fight of faith together. You, You can't do that alone we need each other and this leads to another reason why unity is important it's because we are united to christ and we are united to one another through him we are in an inseparable mutual relationship with one another with christ as our head he's the head of the body he's head of the church that is who you are unity is not optional it is part of the DNA of the church. It is part of what it means to be the body of Christ. We are all members of God's family, and as members of God's families, there are benefits and blessings that belong to us. And, and this is where Paul heads um, in verse 1. These are foundational blessings. And we, let's see that again. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Now, the Greek word used here for if can also be translated as sense, and that really is a better understanding, a better translation of this, because Paul is not talking about a series of possibilities. He's not saying if there's encouragement in Christ, if there's comfort from his love, if there's participation in the Spirit, if there is affection and sympathy in Christ. No, he's talking about a series of certainties. He's saying as Christians, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comforted by His love, since we participate in the Spirit, since we receive affection and sympathy from Christ, these blessings, they are not conditional blessings. They are not blessings that we hope to receive as we follow Jesus. They are realities. If you are following Jesus, then these blessings belong to you. They are true for you. And the more that we understand this, the more that we embrace and experience these blessings in our lives the more that's going to transform the way we view ourselves as well as how we review all other believers. And it's going to lead to joy and it's going to encourage unity within the church. So let us look at each of these blessings individually. First, if you belong to Jesus, then there is encouragement in Him. Now, Paul uses one of his favorite phrases in here, and it's one that we probably don't think about enough. It's one that we can easily overlook, but he uses it all over the place. And it's this phrase, you are in him, or you are in Christ. It means that you are in a union with Jesus. And there's nothing more glorious and more profound than union with Christ. His, the union with Christ should bring us great joy and peace. It's really the foundational blessing of all of these blessings, and it is foundational to the idea of unity within the church. Jesus has united himself to you, and He has united himself to all other believers. And so together we are united to one another through Him. This is a reality. And this reality is a source of our unity. It is foundational to our unity. And not only does this affect the way we relate to one another, it really should affect the way you relate to yourself. Because if you are in Christ, if you are in union with Him, that should bring you lots of encouragement. The word encouragement means to to come near, to come alongside. And isn't that exactly what Jesus has done? He left the glories of heaven to come near to you. He became man to come alongside you. We should be encouraged by his presence with us. This is one of the great blessings that God talks about for his people. He talks about it all over the place. You can't miss it. His big blessing and promise is that I will be with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And that is what Jesus has done. He is with you. And so when you are greatly discouraged, remember that Jesus is with you and he will lift you up. When you're greatly distressed, Jesus is with you and he will give you hope. If you're depressed, Jesus is with you and he will comfort you. If you are just struggling with guilt and shame because of your sin, Jesus is with you and he has forgiven you. When you find yourself in that most darkest hour of your life, Jesus is with you, and he will give you hope and joy. So be encouraged. Jesus is with you. Paul moves on and says, not only is Jesus with us, but he says, if you belong to Jesus, then you are comforted by his love. Jesus loves you. Now, we talk about this all the time, but truthfully, we should never stop talking about it. We can't talk about the love of Christ more than we we are. And he doesn't just love you, but he loves you unconditionally, and he loves you supremely. He knows everything about you. He knows all of your sin. He knows all of the ways that you let him down. He knows all of the ways that you have failed him. And he loves you. He loves you to the uttermost. Now, that means he doesn't overlook your sin. Rather, He takes your sin upon Himself and He makes you righteous. His love is a transforming love. He loved you too much, too much to allow you to stay in your sin. His love for you is what led Him to the cross. And because He loves you, you are forgiven and you are redeemed. His love covers a multitude of sins. And as His followers... We are called to love one another in the same way. That is why love is also foundational to unity. You see, sin separates. Love unites. Sin leads us to despair. Love brings joy. So find comfort in the love of Christ. Paul goes on and says, If you belong to Jesus, then you participate in the Spirit. And the word used here for participation is the same word as fellowship. We talked about this earlier in chapter 1 of Philippians. Uh, Paul is saying that we as Christians are in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given to you. He dwells within you. And the Spirit's primary purpose really is to, to point us to Jesus, to remind us of Jesus, to remind us of Jesus' presence with us, to remind us of his love for us, to remind us that we are forgiven through him. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwells in each and every one of you as Christians. Just think about the implications of that. The same Spirit that is in me is in you, is in you, is in you. The Holy Spirit is in all of us. That is why we are constantly reminded to be of one spirit because that is who we are. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is what unites us to Christ and is who unites us to one another. So our fellowship is not based upon our family. It's not based upon our race. It's not based upon our economic status. It's not based upon what class and society we belong to. It's not based upon what language we speak. Our unity is not based upon anything that we have in common or should not be at least, it is based upon the Spirit of God who dwells in each and every one of us together. That is an unbreakable bond that overlooks and overcomes anything that might be an obstacle to unity. Because we are all one in spirit. Finally, Paul goes on and says if you belong to Jesus, then he is affectionate and sympathetic towards you. Now, I'm sure all of us have heard the phrase before that you know it goes something like this, like, well, I love that person, but I don't really like them. Well, Jesus, he does love you, and he likes you. He's affectionate and caring and compassionate towards you. He understands your struggles. He understands your desires. He understands your your fears and your faults. And those things don't deter him. They don't turn him away. Rather, they actually draw him to you. They draw him closer to you. He loves you and he knows what is best for you. And so he pursues you. Jesus pursues you with a tender and transforming love. You can bring anything to him. Jesus is absolutely trustworthy. And when you come to him, you will not receive judgment. You will not receive condemnation. Rather, you will receive mercy and grace. You will experience his compassion And his tender love for you. And he expects us to love one another in the same way. He expects us to show one another grace and mercy as he lavishes grace and mercy upon us. You see, love, affection, sympathy, these are all dispositions that foster community and encourage unity within the church. So in verse 1, we see that Jesus provides this, this proper, necessary foundation for unity. He said, you know, as Christians, we are all united in Christ together. We are all one in him. We are encouraged by his presence. We are comforted by his love. We participate in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells each and every one of us. And we receive affection and sympathy from Jesus. And so with that foundation in place, Paul then exhorts the church to be united to one another. We see this in verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. So Paul exhorts the church in in Philippi to complete my joy. Now, what does that mean? Now, Paul is not telling the church, like, I I am unhappy with you guys. You need to make me feel better. Or he's not saying, like, man, you guys got to shape up because you are just dragging me down. No, we've seen already that Paul loves this church. He deeply loves them. And the saints there are bringing him great joy. So what Paul is saying is this, you already are bringing me great joy, just bring me even more joy. And how do you do that? By growing in unity. He's saying, I want more joy from you because if you're bringing me more joy, that means that you are more unified and you are exalting Jesus even more than you are already. And there are implications here for us today. The first implication is that you will always have room to grow. God is working in you, He's working on you, He's working through you. He is not done transforming you. So if you're here this morning, I, you may love with Jesus and love other people with a great passion. You may have tremendous faith. You may be a prayer warrior. You may be full of joy that it's infectious. But you can still grow in all of those areas. You will never fully arrive in your Christian walk until you are with Jesus. There will always be room to grow. Second, what Paul is saying is how we live out our faith affects the people that God has placed into our lives to lead and to shepherd us. You see, the churches that Paul planted, they could be sources of great joy, but they also could be sources of great sorrow to him. The Apostle John alludes to this when he said that he had no greater joy than knowing his children were walking in the faith. This is found in in 3 John, verse 4. And he's talking about not his physical children, biological children, he's talking about his spiritual children, those people he's led to the Lord. And he gets great joy as he sees them grow in their faith, as he sees them grow in their ability to to love one another, as they're continuing to walk faithfully with Jesus. And, And parents, you here, you know this, right? How much... Sorrow and, and worrying do you do if your children are not walking with Jesus? Or another way to think about that is how much joy do you have when one of your children come to confess Jesus as Lord and, and follows him? I have to, have to remind myself of this with my two boys. I, I try to communicate this to myself regularly that I am willing, as hard as it is, I am willing to lose every battle with my two boys as long as they come to know and follow Jesus. And this is not true just for biological children, it's also true for spiritual children. So you have the capacity to bring great joy or to bring great sorrow to the men and women that God has placed in your lives. Particularly those he's placed in your lives to be to, to help shepherd you and help to mentor you and help lead you. That could be a parent, it could be a teacher, it could be somebody that you're in a relationship with as a mentor, And it is especially true of pastors and elders. We see this in Hebrews 13, 17, which says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. So have you ever considered how your actions in your life or in the church, how that will bring your leaders joy or how it might cause them grief? We're told to consider such things. And I can tell you, as a pastor, there's lots of things that bring me joy. Thankfully, there's many more things that bring me joy. It brings me joy when I see somebody forgive somebody who's wronged them. It brings me joy when I see somebody actually come to know Jesus. It brings me joy when I see somebody discover something in God's Word for the first time and just see them light up. But there are things that bring me sorrow. There are things that bring elders sorrow. Obviously, when we see somebody turn away from Jesus... Or if we see somebody who has been wronged and rather than going to talk to them, they decide to talk to everybody else. You know, we're commanded if someone's sensing against you to go to them first. That doesn't happen often. It brings us sorrow when we see fighting and grumbling and slandering happening among the body. How often in the decisions you make and the things you do, do you actually consider, is this going to bring my elders? my mentors, my parents, joy? Or is it going to cause them sorrow? Now, the Philippians were living in a way that brought great joy to Paul, and he wanted them to continue to do that. How? Well, by growing in in unity. He exhorts them to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He wants them to be one. And this command still applies to the church. We are to have the same mind and have mutual love for one another. We are called to be one. So how exactly do we do this? Well, Paul goes on and says that we do this by pursuing humility. Humility is is really one of the chief virtues of unity. And so Paul writes in verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, this was actually a radical calling in the days of the church, because in the, the Greeks, they didn't even have a word for humility. Even just the, the whole idea of humility to them was, was similar to, to slavery. They thought the pursuit of humility would be somebody choosing to become a slave or somebody choosing to become the lowest person in society for no reason at all. And as much as the Greeks hated the idea of humility, the Rom- Romans hated it even more. The concept of humility to the Romans was abhorrent. It was the Christian church that invented the word humility. It was the Christians that were the ones that elevated humility to a virtue, and not just any virtue, but one of the chief virtues. And what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It was a foundational. Humility is foundational to be a follower of Jesus. So humility is really a radical and countercultural concept. And I don't think this has changed, really. I think one of the ways that the church can distinguish itself from the rest of culture is by being humble. It's through humility. So what exactly does this look like? Well, humility affects our our motivation, our perspective on on why and how we interact with other people. Human beings, by nature, are sinful and selfish. We are naturally self-centered, and we live in a self-centered world. Uh, apart from Christ our orientation is, is this that we we put ourselves first other second and if we have any concept of God he is last that is our natural orientation and that is what sin does because at the heart of sin it's pride it's a desire that we to, to be God ourselves it's this idea that we don't need God that we can control our own destinies that we can control everything about our lives it's a rejection of God really sin tells us that that We come first. It is a me-centered outlook of life. It exalts ourselves over the glory of God. And humility actually turns that all around. Humility exalts God over self. It reorients us so that we put God first, others second, and ourselves last. Unity is never possible without humility. Humility. Because you see, it's not a difference of opinions, it's not the color of our skin, it's not what political party we support, it's not the things that we do and don't do that separate us. Sin separates us. Selfishness and self-centeredness, this this me-first orientation, is really the greatest obstacle to unity within the body of Christ. And so Paul encourages us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. The gospel humbles us. It changes our perspective. It makes us it makes it so that we're no longer me-focused, but rather we're, we're, we're God-focused. Our identity, our orientation, the way that we view ourselves, the way that we view others, the way that we view the world in which we live, the way that we view God is changed. We now view ourselves, we view others as children of God. And we are all part of the body of Christ. And therefore, we need to live in such a way that honors and promotes that body. The gospel provides us with a new motivation. It says we are now motivated by the love of God, and and we're motivated by his love for people and how we seek to love and serve other people. And this is not always easy to do, though. Like Our desire really should be to see others flourish more so than ourselves flourish. And we do consider others often, but we don't always consider them in the right way, do we? Melissa Kruger said this, she said, We spend a lot of time considering others, but many times it's not in the best of ways. We consider what others possess and we want it. We consider others' actions and we disagree. We consider others' opinions and we crave their approval. Our thoughts of others can lead to a coveting judgment and other self-seeking behaviors. And this is why we need Jesus. We have been forgiven. We have been set free from the bondage of sin. But we still live in a sinful world. We still wrestle with our own sinful flesh. We will always wrestle with viewing other people as objects to use for our own purpose and our own glory. As opposed to seeing other people as opportunities to love and to serve as Christ loves us. And to encourage their flourishing. Jesus doesn't come and he doesn't blind us to others. He doesn't blind us to who, other people, who, who people are and, and the things that they have. Rather, he enables us to see them through his eyes. He enables us to view others through the lens of love and humility. And to no longer view them through the, with the lens of, of pride and of selfishness. And so therefore, through Jesus, we are able to consider others before we consider ourselves. Because he humbles us. Now, this does not mean that what Jesus is asking you to do is to just think about how horrible of a person you are. We should not spend all of our time and energy thinking about all of our sins and all the ways that we've let Jesus down. Because if we do that, we'll just grow in despair. It will crush us. And it loses sight of the gospel. Because when we do that, you know what we're actually doing? We're still focused on ourselves. Humility is looking more and more towards Jesus and less and less at ourselves. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes a humble person. This is what he wrote in Mere Christianity. He says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. So humility is not that we lose sight of who we are. And that's important because we are all made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. You have great worth. You have great honor. You have great dignity. In Christ, you are all beautiful, precious sons and daughters of God. And it is because of those things that you're actually able to focus on others more and more. You are able to consider others more significant than yourselves because you have everything you need in Jesus already. Jesus is the one. He determines your worth. He determines your values. He determines your priorities. He determines your purpose. You do not need to look to other people for that. Therefore, you are free to love and to serve others unconditionally. Humility does not just give us motivation to love and serve others, but it actually, it calls us to action. And that's why Paul goes on to say, let each of you look not only to his own actions, but also to the interest of others. You are, not, you are called to look out for the interest of others. Now, Paul reminds us that that does not mean that we um, shouldn't be concerned for ourselves. It's really an issue of priorities, that we should, our priorities should be the, the interest of others more than our own interest. Another way to think about it is our interest should be in submission to the interest of other people. Another way to consider this is that we should seek to love and serve others before ourselves, but in such a way that, that we are not suddenly becoming a burden to them or to other people. Because that would be counterproductive. And that's not always easy to figure out. So how do we do that? Well, I think one of the ways we do that is, is to assume the best of your brothers and sisters. Because when we don't do this, when we assume the worst... It's impossible to serve them. It's impossible to love them because whenever they do something wrong or find themselves in a situation where they need help, we're going to question our motives. We're going to blame them for where they're at. We're not going to have a desire to serve them and love them. However, if you assume the best of other people, it's much easier to surrender your rights and your own desires in order to serve them. And that leads to another way that we love and serve one another out of humility, is that we need to be willing to make sacrifices. Looking after the interests of others over your own means that you might have to forego your priorities. You might have to forego your schedules. You might have to forego even your own desires. It means that you might have to sacrifice your time or your energy, your resources. It means that you might have to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation. I don't know if you're familiar with, a, a, there's a Chinese Christian evangelist who is called, uh, named Watchman Nee, and, and he provides a great illustration for this. He talks about a Christian he knew in China who was a poor uh, rice farmer and he lived up on a mountain in, in these series of plateaus and his, his plot of land was on one of those plateaus and each and every morning he would get up and he would uh, water all of his plants. And then later in the day he would discover that his neighbor who had the plateau, the field below his, would open up the dikes and let all the water that he just poured into his fields to flow down into his own field. And this was obviously really discouraging and frustrating. You know, it was an injustice. And so as this man kind of day after day would watch all his hard labor go to nothing because basically his plants were getting any of the water they needed and all his neighbors was stealing it from him, he really wrestled with this. And so he spent some time in prayer. He went and talked to some uh, brothers and sisters uh, that he knew uh, in in the church there in China. And after praying about it, he came up with a new idea, a new approach. And this is what he did. He he got up even earlier the next morning and he watered his neighbor's field first and then he watered his own. It took a lot more time and energy and effort but he would do that day after day after day. And eventually it led his man to the Lord. This neighbor to the Lord. This is what God used to convert this man. We are called to humble ourselves by putting others' needs before our own. And Jesus is the one that shows us the way. You see, Jesus left glory to deny himself in order to save you. He counted your salvation as more important than his own life. He died and suffered much for sinners such as us. And now Jesus is calling us to be one. He's calling us to be unified. And we can do this by remembering all the many blessings that we have in him, We also do this by seeking to grow in humility. So how do we grow in humility? One book I read years ago on humility uh, gave a bunch of practical suggestions and one of the suggestions was that you just need to play a lot of golf. I know that's true for me. But there are a lot of serious things that we can do and these are more important is that you grow in humility first and foremost by reflecting upon the cross. You see there is no pride at the foot of the cross. The cross reminds us daily that we were sinners in need of a Savior and that Christ paid a big, big price in order to save you. You also grow in humility by reflecting upon the glory of Christ. The more we see and understand the glory of Christ, the more we are humbled in his presence. And that is where Paul goes next, and we're going to focus on that next week, is the next passage is all about the glory of Christ the glory of his humiliation and the glory of his exaltation and we'll be talking about that next Sunday you also can grow in humility by, by reading and meditating on God's word Isaiah 66 tells us that he who is humble is the one who trembles at God's word you can grow in humility through prayer prayer really is a, a posture of humility it's, it's bending our knee before the Lord and recognizing and confessing that we need him that we are dependent upon him that we can't do it ourselves. You can also grow in humility by serving other people. And this is really what Paul is calling us to do here. The church is called to unity. We are called to be of one mind, to have the same love, being in full of accord. And we do this in part by seeking to grow in humility. And as we grow in humility, we will better serve one another, and as we better serve one another, we will grow in humility. The more we grow in humility, the better we will serve one another, and the more unified the body of Christ will be. And that is only possible through Jesus, to whom be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he humbled himself, that he emptied himself in order to save sinners such as us. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us have a greater grasp and understanding of of what that means, the implications of that for us, that we would be humbled before the cross. I pray that you would continue to grow our grasp of your glory, and that also would humble us. Lord, I pray that whatever obstacles are standing in the way of, of unity within this body here at Tabernacle, but just your church, universal, that you would remove those obstacles, that you would humble us, and that we would all be one as we are intended to be. We thank you that you've given your Holy Spirit to, to live in each one of us and, and pray that your Spirit would continue to convict us of our sins, would continue to point us to Jesus, reminding us of his forgiveness and his love for us. And Lord, I do pray as, as we grow in unity, Lord, I pray that that would, that would be attractive to this world that they would see that we are different, that despite our many differences, despite our differing differing opinions, uh, that we still love one another unconditionally and that we still serve one another faithfully, that we put one another's needs above our own. We can't do this in our own power. We need you. So Lord, grow us in unity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.